Even while we were dead in our trespasses, you sent your Son to be the light of the world. That in a world full of confusion and darkness and pain, Lord, that your Son illuminates the dark, Lord. I just pray that as we read your scriptures and as we listen to your word, that you would illuminate those things in our hearts that you want to speak to, Father. That you would give us the light that we need to see the path that you've set before us. And I pray that as you do that, that our hearts would be in awe of the work that you've done for us, Lord. And that we'd be transformed to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, I want to start by talking about something cool, which is, first of all, what a cool band we have, number one. I just have to say that because, you know, I kind of roped them into uh, helping me out tonight, and I super appreciate them and all that they do. Um, and I think I'm talking to you right there, that camera, yeah. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to say um, thank you to them, and obviously, as you all know, I'm super blessed to have amazing band members who helped me with that. And... Um, we have some good news, though. Uh, we've been doing this virtual home group thing for many weeks now, many, many weeks. And uh, I'm really excited to announce that next week we will be welcoming anybody who wants to attend to come on and join us on Thursday night at 7 p.m. for virtual home group live. We're gonna, I'm, that's kind of a silly title, but it's still what we've been doing for virtual home group, but we're allowing people to then come and be a part of what we do here. Um, we, we've been recently streaming from our main sanctuary, and so we have plenty of room here to spread people out. Uh, we've got it blocked off every other pew. We can do some social distancing together is the hope. And uh, so I'm really hoping that we can get some people um, out here next week. And it's really, we're just kind of rolling with the punches. As you know, um, the numbers have started to climb again, and there's many, many analyses for why that's happening, what's happening. But ultimately, the one thing that I want you to know tonight as we dive into the Word, and I'm not talking about COVID this whole time, but I want you to know that we still stand in faith that perfect love casts out fear. And as we talk about this and we see all these catastrophic headlines, all these things that are um, making, uh, talking about how great the problem is. And some of them have, have good intentions, right? They're trying to get people to follow the basic reasonable guidelines to help stop this thing, to help uh, cease the illness and death. And it's absolutely crucial that we are paying attention and we're listening to that. As Christians, we are called to love the least uh, we're called to, to love those people, the vulnerable, and part of that is doing our part, of course, to stop the spread of COVID-19. All that said, we do not, we do not 
want to give into a spirit of fear here. And so I just want to make that very, very clear that no matter what happens in the coming months, as we're kind of adjusting to all the various changes that this has brought into our life, I just ask that you stand in faith that perfect love cast out all fear. And of course, COVID is not even the only thing that we're dealing with on a natural, on a national level, uh, on a world level. So I'm going to start there and then we're going to jump in. We're going to jump right into Romans uh, chapter 8. If you're following along in the daily office readings, uh, our readings today are Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11 is the New Testament. And it's honestly, Romans chapter 8 is my number one, easily, favorite passage of all of Scripture. Now, I, I want to clarify, my favorite chapter of all of Scripture. I do want to clarify that it is not necessarily my favorite Scripture story, right? Because he's kind of explaining some of the meat of what we believe. It's not a story for him. Like, that, that would have to be Joseph or David or one of the, you know, there's some stories. But as far as single chapters go, I don't know if you can beat Romans chapter 8. It is like the pinnacle of our faith. And so as I'm building it up, and I'm kind of giving you the, the, the lead up to that, as we read this, just realize this is uh, in the middle of the book of Romans. And the, the book of Romans is like Paul's really trying to explain um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit what we believe, because I don't know if we realize this because we're like 2,000 years into this project, but when Paul was writing to these churches, this was brand new. They had never heard these words. They didn't understand the story of Jesus. There were some people who had encountered him, who had been healed by him, who had been transformed by him, but Paul's working out what that really means in our life. Now, how do we live? What does that mean in light of all of Scripture? And so when you read the New Testament, if you can see it through the eyes of somebody who's never read it before, uh, I think it could help us to try and put on that hat and say, okay, what is he saying here? Because up until this point, every religion that had ever existed in the history of the world had one model. And you know what? After this point, the, the new religions that came after uh, Christianity uh, kind of inherited the tradition of Judaism. It became what it was. Uh, the religions who came after that, they actually copied the same model as all the ones that came before. Christianity is absolutely unique. And the first verse pulls this out beautifully. In chapter 8, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to just give you a little background on this. What Paul, when he says, therefore, as you may have heard if you've been in any Bible class, you have to ask, what is the there, what is the therefore, therefore, right? That's the question. So what is Paul linking this thought to? He says, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right off the bat, that's an encouraging word. But what's he linking it to? If you go back to chapter 7, I'm just going to read this. You don't have to turn there, but here it is. Um, Whoop. Likewise, okay, here we go. Uh, chapter 7, I'm actually going to paraphrase because it's really dense. What he's writing is really complex, but it's awesome. But his point is that you have died to the law through the body of Christ. And because you died, you are no longer under the guilt of the law. And we kind of get that, that that's how justice works, right? If you do something really, really bad, then you get convicted and you get the death penalty, right? I'm not talking about the politics of whether we should enforce the death penalty tonight, but I want you to just think in a simplistic term is 
you do something bad, you get death. That's kind of the model of justice that we have before us. And so what Paul argues, and it's so brilliant, is you actually, when you were we, we know this, right? When we talk about baptism, we say this. When you were baptized, you were buried in death with Christ and raised to newness of life. So there's actually something happening here that has never been talked about before. There's something where you're invited, when you enter into the mystery of what Jesus has done for us, you're invited into death that you might have resurrection life. Now, I want to unpack that just a little bit because it can be, it just, it's a little dense in here, but the point of the matter is, is that Jesus did the work, not you. When we talk about Christianity, the reason that it's unique is because every religion had it this way. And if you were looking at the world with your human eyes, it would make sense. If you do good things, then you will get good things. And if you multiply that out, to infinity, then if you do enough good things, you will get eternal life, or you will get uh, utopia, or you will get uh, the uh, nirvana. You will you will reach enlightenment if you work really hard and you follow the right path and you figure it out. Then you'll reach the top of the spiritual mountain. Really, what it was was every religion up until this point was teaching that you had to work your way to God, whereas Christianity turns that around and explains that actually God worked his way to you. That Jesus came and died on the cross, that sin may no longer have power over us. And it's like foreshadowed throughout the entire Old Testament, and it's really fascinating, but we're not going to take the time to talk about it, because there's... Not necessarily enough time to do that and cover our other verses tonight. But the point is, our whole history of man, we've made these sacrifices to appease God. Because the one thing that every religion across the board admits is that we are broken. That there's something in us that calls out for the fullness that we've been made for. That right now we are not living the kingdom as God has set it up to be. Now, everyone disagrees on what that means, but it does point out something in the human heart that knows we are made for more than this. And that there's actually a problem with the fact that there is suffering and death in the world. It makes perfect sense because what happened is God created us to live in a paradise where we are growing in love and in goodness, and we turn from him. And the whole story of the Bible up until this point, I think there's, a, there's 1,600 pages before this in my Bible, is God writing the world after we turned our back on him. God pursuing us after we turned away from him. It's too good to be true. It really is, because we don't deserve it. I'm surprised my wife married me. And she has her own flaws and difficulties and issues. And I work really hard, especially, I think I work just as hard now. But let's say, when we were first getting to know each other, I worked really hard to convince her to marry me. Now I'm working really hard to convince her that it was the right choice. But that's a a whole other ballgame. The point is, I worked really hard and somehow she accepted me where I was at that time to be her husband, to grow in, in, in love. And, you know, the only way that that works is because God's in the mix. 
Because I'm not good enough to make that work. She's not good enough to make that work. But God's good enough to make that work. And as we both humbly seek him and live our life together, he can work that out. But I bring that up to say, how in the world could this perfect God, who created everything that there is, be in love with you and me? How in the world, in the midst, he sees all of our darkness. You know, on that first date with Haley, I didn't tell her that I had flaws. I was trying to convince her I didn't. But God knew all that, and yet he still sent his son to die for us. It wasn't like, uh, you know, the dating game where it's like, who's behind door number one? You know, it's like, no, it wasn't like that. It was like, now, if you want this person, your son has to die for that to happen. And he did it. And he didn't just do it like Jesus' story is the most significant version of this story that we get. But guess what? God did it for thousands of years, and he's doing it today. He's pursuing us. He's paying the price so that we can live with no condemnation in Christ Jesus. So that the flaws that we have, the sins that we commit, are completely covered by the power of what he has done for us. So that we can live in freedom. It says in Galatians, it is for freedom that we have been set free. Now, I just want to start here because it's so important. This is the crux of the whole thing here. There's a turning point. There's there now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Guess what? I don't believe that sometimes. And the reason I say that, I always think it, I always think I believe it, but I'm a strong believer that your beliefs will show themselves in your actions and how you see the world. So if you act as if you are ashamed and guilty and bound by the things you've done and you're carrying this weight of sin around on your shoulders and you're lashing out at people because you're hurting, because you're internalizing guilt and you're having your perspective changed by that, then maybe you really don't believe that you're set free, that there is no condemnation for you. And so I want to admit today that like the leper who came to Jesus and said, I need to be healed, and Jesus said, uh, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's an acknowledgement that, yes, I get that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but I need help with that faith, right? So all that to say, that's verse 1, and there's 11 verses to go, so probably an hour and a half or so if you're looking to strap in for that. Um, we need Jesus And we need him to teach us how to believe in him. And I say that particularly because we focus a lot on his sacrifice on the cross. The fact that there's now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We focus on that a lot. But we often leave that out of our daily walk with Christ. Now, I'm I'm, I'm generalizing here, so maybe you don't. Maybe you got this one figured out. But we often then put all the onus for everything from the moment we were saved to the moment we die, we put that back on our shoulders. And we say, in order for us to be a good Christian, I need to do more. Well, I'm telling you right now, if you want to learn how to live life differently than you did before, you need a different, you need a teacher who is not of this world, let's say. And let's, let's, 
I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So let's, let's read a little bit farther. And there's a lot of words in here that I personally don't feel like I fully understand. But I think we can get the gist today. And I'm trusting the Holy Spirit because there's a lot that he's talking about here. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. There's a lot there. What he's saying is that, and he's explained all this. This is like a summary of what he's been talking about for chapters and chapters. So I'm going to sum up his summary. But what he's saying is that we could not in our flesh, accomplish by following the law perfection. We couldn't earn our way to God. It's just not possible. And you can see that. You can see that all the way down the road. There's, there was a really interesting mission trip that I went on in high school to talk with Mormons. And fascinating theology, fascinating faith, a lot of overlap. They do believe in the Bible, but they have all these other books that kind of interpret the Bible and kind of further God's revelation that they have uh, on top of that from their prophet. And uh, the long story short of it is they are a works-based faith. It has to do with how good you are, and that will determine what happens to you in the afterlife. Now, I've just talked about how that's what every religion tries to do besides Christianity that says Jesus actually did something so that you could go to heaven, right? so that your salvation is guaranteed. And I bring that up to say this. When we're looking at this and we're talking about how he's saying that the law, we couldn't in our flesh, in our weakness, fulfill the requirements of the law and earn our way to God. I say that because when you talk to these people who are deep into Mormonism, I talk to some missionaries, I talk to some people who are further down the road, there is a point at which they cannot say with any confidence whether or not they are accepted by their God. Because it's not the God we serve. So I say specifically their God. They can't tell whether they have satisfied God's requirements according to their law. Could you imagine? We see this uh, in, in the nuclear family. Here's a good example where there's a son who's a rebel, you know, or he's working really hard and his dad just, he, you, you see it in TV shows all the time. You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to be the quarterback and I'm going to, you know, do the thing. And then he takes the steroids to like be good enough so he can please his dad. And then he like goes down the wrong path. Like it's a common trope because he's so insecure in the love of his father that he's just working himself to death to try and get there. That's what the law is. That's what it is for these Mormon people that I'm talking to. At some point, if you let them, if they open up to you, at some point you ask the question and I, say, and I would say, do you know whether you're accepted by God? And they go, I can't know. I do all these things, but I can't know. Could you imagine if you couldn't know that your father loved you and you thought that you had to do all these things to fulfill his love, I do it with my own earthly father, especially when I was growing up. I can look back in high school and see the pattern where it's like I feel like I have to earn his love, and he's like trying to give it to me, but I'm like, oh, but i got to be good, and i got to do these things. That's what God is talking about. That's what Paul is talking about in here. It's like we didn't have it in ourselves to help ourselves. We couldn't fulfill the law. We couldn't gain God's love. But the things we were singing about tonight, no other love, like, that's exactly right. There's no other love 
that will set us free from this. Because you need to know that God loves you. That the Father, the creator of everything that is, the determiner and establisher and creator of value, values you. That you, no matter what you've done in your life, have caught his eye. And that he wants to see you in the fullness of freedom and life and joy. Don't be like that kid on the football team trying to impress his dad. And they have the strained relationship. And then the dad's like, oh, my dad never loved me. And blah, blah, blah. like It's broken, right? And it's like we can actually experience true fatherhood through our Father in heaven who loves us. And we need to be healed from that impulse that we have in ourselves to impress our fathers, our mothers, our spouses, our brothers, our sisters, our friends. We have this need in us to be loved and liked. And we need to get that fulfilled in the Father, the good Father, God the Father. And it can't be our own works that set us free. It has to be his. So Jesus lived a perfect life, establishing the kingdom of God and dying to take away the punishment of sin and death in our life to heal us, to reach out to us so that we can walk in the righteousness of Christ. And then it changes. And this is the last point that I'm going to really hit on here, but we're going to, we're going to talk about it a little bit in these next few verses. I'm just going to read through them to start with, right? He, at the end of verse 4, he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He's talking about us. We're supposed to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Let's just stop there, right? Which one do you want? You want death or do you want life and peace? Pretty obvious. So maybe it's important for us to figure out what does this mean? To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Well, we've been talking at church, last virtual home group, I talked about the Lord's Prayer, and that had some of this in it. But we've been talking about the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is just completely breaking apart the worldly wisdom of how we think we should behave. And he has these beatitudes that set us up, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let me just use that as an example because I don't want to preach that whole sermon again. But when you're talking, blessed are the poor in spirit, doesn't it make more sense to say blessed are the rich in spirit? Blessed are the uber spiritual? Blessed are those people who just like have it all figured out and are praying 24 hours a day? And that's not the point Jesus is making. That's not the point. What Jesus is saying is that there's actually something about being poor in spirit that is more spiritual than being the uber-spiritual guru. There's something about knowing your need for God in your spirit. There's something about knowing your poverty, that you don't come bringing all this spiritual wealth to the table, but you're there to receive from him, to stay thirsty for him, to stay hungry for him. And I use that as an example in this, right? For to put the, set the mind on the flesh is death. So to set the mind on the flesh is to be the person who walks around for the praises of men, who wants everybody to say how good of a prayer you are, how good of a worship leader you are. I'm not pointing out anybody, but how good of a teacher or preacher you are, how good of a Christian you are. Like, that's not the point. That's setting your mind on things of the flesh. The things of the Spirit are, I'm focused on God and what He wants in my life. 
And all that other stuff is a distraction. And God wants to free you from those bonds that we put on ourselves where we're trying to perform for other people, where we're trying to show other people how good we are, where we're trying to build up our own egos and our own uh, ideas about how to be good. He wants to break that down and he wants you to submit to his law. In verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Submission is a dirty word in our day and age. It has been riddled with negative ideas. I mean, for instance, the idea of the patriarchy. The men, you know, this idea of this male-dominated society where all the women are forced to submit to the man and how terrible. I, I'm not making fun of the fact that there are times and circumstances where people in power of any race, gender, ethnicity, whatever, lord it over others. And that's anti-Christ. That's anti what God taught. Even the leaders of the church, he said, you, now, you shall not be like the Gentiles who lord it over them. And so, yes, absolutely, there is a point where submission can be bad. The most easy example in today's day and age is slavery was bad. Forcing those slaves to submit to the rule because they're black and you're white is just evil. It broke God's heart, and thank the Lord that we are free from that for the most part in our society. Of course we know that there are still situations in the world where slavery exists, and that needs to be confronted because that's not what God's talking about when he talks about submission. Anytime you find submission in the Bible, you're finding something different. But not to get twisted around that concept of submission. It's like we think that we're the boss of our life. It's really ingrained in us. And I can even see it coming out in my son. Rowan, oh, the beautiful angel boy. If you've seen a picture of him, if you've seen him laugh, he could never do anything wrong. But man, sometimes it's been creeping up in him, this rebellion thing, and I'm comforted by the scripture. Rebellion is bound up in the heart of every child, and the rod of discipline shall drive it far from him. I am standing on that verse right now because there are times where we tell Rowan, do not hurt your sister. And he'll walk over there after you've said that, and he will kick Ruby. And I'm like, Rowan, submit. That's what God's talking about when he's talking about submission, especially when he's talking about submission to him. We have desires in our hearts that lead us down the wrong path. And it might feel good at the time. Rowan probably got a great surge of adrenaline from kicking his sister. He was real happy with it. But I know that in the end, that way leads to death, right? Sin and rebellion leads to death. And so it's my job as his dad to teach him to submit. I was in a philosophy class where they literally talked about the father, son, mother, daughter, mother, son, whatever. They talked about the parent-offspring relationship as an oppressive hierarchy of power where parents lord it over the child and you should ask the child for permission in order to change its diaper. Don't get me going on this. There's a lot out there that wants to tell you that you should be the only one in charge of your life. Let me just tell you right now, it is way better God's way. And let me tell Rowan, I'll make sure he listens to this tomorrow. It is way better his parents' way. 
in the same way because God can see things that we can't. If I tell Rowan not to touch the stove, it might be because the stove's on and he could hurt himself and he doesn't know that. And in the same way, when God directs us and we're called to submit to him, it's because he's leading us like a good shepherd beside the still waters. He's restoring our souls. And sometimes that looks like him telling us not to do things we want to do. I bring all that up. It's preaching to the choir for a lot of you, but think about it. If you haven't done something that God asked you to do that went against what you wanted to do in a long time, if you're just kind of walking the, the path and you haven't felt like you've been, um, how do I phrase this? If you haven't felt tension between what God wants you to do and what you want to do in a long time, then it might be time to ask God what he wants you to do. Because it's really easy to just autopilot Christian Go through your days, attend your services, do your things that you know that God wants you to do, and never ask him about the things that he wants to change in your life. So maybe you've set your, things on, your mind on things of the flesh and not of the spirit. Because when you set your mind on things of the spirit, then he will lead you and he will guide you. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right, let's just read the rest of this and I'll make a couple comments and we'll close up because I don't know where you're sitting and watching this, but it is hot in this sanctuary. Okay, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's pretty cool. So I just talked about all that. And then he says, now you who have accepted Jesus Christ, who have been baptized into his kingdom, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Thank God, because he just said that the flesh is death and the spirit is life and peace. So let's, let's go through here, though, because maybe some of us need more life and peace in our life. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So that's a really key point, right? And I could preach a whole Pentecost sermon on the fact that the Holy Spirit in, is in you. But I'm not going to preach a whole Pentecost sermon on that because we're going to keep going. So let's, let's start with verse 9. You, whoever are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. I'm going to skip over that for now. It's a really fascinating verse. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, that last, let's just focus on that last verse, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So he's really, he's like, what Paul's doing, right, is he's unfolding the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's really fascinating how he, if you look at like diagrams of his arguments, I mean, I could go on and on, I'm such a geek. But if you look at it, it's, it, he's pulling all of the stuff that the God had revealed to his people, he's pulling it out and he's working it out and he's showing them how this works. But the point of it all is, for us today, what we need to be aware of is that the same power that was in Christ Jesus is in you and me. But we don't believe it. Remember what I said about belief. Belief is when you live as though you believe what you're saying, not when you mentally affirm it. So how often are you aware of the fact that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is active in your life? I know I forget all the time. Somebody cuts me off on the freeway. I forget real quick. 
that it's the spirit that raised Christ from the dead that's in me, and I'm very focused on the fact that this person's in my way, and I'm trying to get to church because i got to do holy things, and I'm pissed. It's like that is an easy way to get distracted. And I'm making light of some things, but maybe there's something more serious. Maybe somebody you know is seriously ill. Maybe somebody died. Maybe you have financial burdens that you just can't find your way out of. Maybe there's something that you need help with, and you've lost all hope that Christ can help you. And I'm here today to tell you that that is not true. That God in Christ Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can save you from any and all circumstances in your life. And you know how I know that? Because at the end of this chapter, there's a really fascinating verse that's not even in the readings today, but I just you can't read chapter 8 without talking about this verse. I'm going to paraphrase it. Oh, no, here it is. Chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. All of the stuff that Paul's working out in here, all of the theology that we're talking about, the fact that the spirit lives in you and not, not the flesh, don't set your mind on the things of the flesh, but the things of the spirit, as he's directing you in how to believe in Jesus Christ, how to walk out your faith, There's just promise after promise after promise. We started with, there is now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus, which means that if you're condemning yourself for something that you feel like you did wrong, then in the power of Jesus' name, I pray that that thing would leave you because it's not of the Spirit. The Spirit will convict you for the sake of change. He will point out the places where you can grow, and he will empower you to do so. But the enemy is committed to beating you over the head with your mistakes. But there is no condemnation, so we can walk in freedom with that. And furthermore, to end this all, all things work for our good. Which means that if you're in something that is not good, then I can promise you one thing. You're not in the end of it yet. If you're experiencing something that's not good, then you haven't seen the redemption that's been promised. Because God's going to use that for good. In fact, the most prescient the most important example we have of this is just imagine for one second as we close today, if you were one of the disciples and you've been following this guy for three years and the kingdom of God has come to earth, you're seeing people set free and healed and you're ready to go because the whole world is changing because of this guy. And then one day you see him hanging on a cross. Everyone's turned against him. He's beaten and bloodied and eventually he's He dies. And then after he's dead, they stab him to just make sure he's dead. That didn't feel like it could be good. That was that moment where it could not be used for good. God can't use that for good. For sure he can't. And yet now we see that moment as the coronation of King Jesus. Now people wear a cross as a symbol of power and comfort, a torture device that was used to destroy a man and many others besides is now a symbol of the greatest hope that has ever entered into the world. So you think your problems, which are serious, and I get if it's, you know, maybe they're not. Maybe you need to know how unserious your problems are. But there are serious problems out there. And if you're in one of those, and I've been in one of those, I've been in those situations, you have to know that Jesus is right there with you. And... He's not just there to say, I understand how you're feeling. He's there to resurrect what's dead in your life. 
the Holy Spirit who lives in you is the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. So let's live like that. Let's live like we believe that. I promise is the last thing. We'll wrap up. That also means we've got to treat other people like maybe Jesus can save them too. There's plenty of times where we can point at people who piss us off or who don't believe the same way we do or who just seem so evil and rotten and terrible and God wants to save them too. So part of living that is not only living it for your life but living it for those around you and sharing that love with those around you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to read your word and to be inspired by your spirit. And I pray that it wouldn't be about the words that I said, but it would be about the power of your spirit transforming hearts as they listen to this message, Lord. And I thank you for the opportunity, even as we're talking about coming back next week and meeting uh, together in home group, Lord. I thank you for the community that we've had online. And I thank you for the opportunity to come and begin meeting again in person. I pray especially right now for all the pain and suffering related to COVID-19, the far-reaching impacts of this virus. And I pray in the name of Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would heal those who are sick and that you would halt this virus, Lord, that you would guide us as a people, Lord, by your abundant grace, Lord, that we might stop the spread. And Jesus, individually, I pray that you would encourage our hearts not to walk in fear, but in love and power and a sound mind. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.